Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. In John 10.10, Jesus taught his followers that he had come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Later in John 15, he explained how it is that Jesus imparts this spiritual life to us. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Spiritual flourishing results from abiding in Christ. That is not a word we use much today. This episode explains what this Greek word means and identifies four obstacles to experiencing this connectedness to Christ that causes us to be fruitful. Thanks for joining us today for Season 2, Episode number 28 of Mission Focused Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. The Greek word meno is translated abide by the ESV and NASB and remain by the NIV. It means to stay vitally connected to someone. The word abide has the same root as abode, a dwelling place. Hence, in the J.B. Phillips translation, Jesus says, If you live in me and I live in you, you will bear much fruit. Just four verses later, Jesus repeats this word meno, making it clear that the kind of connection he has in mind is their love relationship with him. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. This text reinforces what we saw last week, that the first part of our mission as Christ followers is that we are called to Christ to enjoy a love relationship with him. Since building a rich, deep, strong love relationship with Christ is the key to spiritual flourishing, it's worth giving some thought to the obstacles that must be overcome to deepen our love for Christ. Let's look at four such obstacles. First, believing that even though Christ died for my sins and forgives me, my continual yielding to sin fills him with disgust toward me. After all, he is holy. If some of the secret thoughts of our minds were posted on Google Docs for everyone to see, we could never look people in the eye again, especially our kids. And others seeing what we're really like inside aren't even holy like God is. We men often are very aware of the repulsiveness of our sins to a holy God, especially the sexual ones. Oh, we believe that when we die, we will go into God's holy presence because we're cleansed from our sin by Jesus' blood. But until then, some men feel like they have to live in God's heavenly doghouse. If they took the awfulness of their sin more seriously, they would not keep on sinning. Let's think about this concept of God sending me to the doghouse because despite loving me and forgiving me, I'm too dirty for him to like Do you want to hang out with people who don't like you? Is that the group that you choose to be your friends? Of course not. To the contrary, your friends are those who do like you. In fact, as I look at my closest friendships, there's almost a direct relationship between those who like me most and those I want to be close to. So 
Satan, the accuser of the brothers, wants to poison my relationship with God by convincing me God's current attitude towards me is to banish me to the spiritual doghouse because I can't get righteousness right. Giving Satan this power means I will never achieve the most foundational part of my mission, enjoying a love relationship with Christ. Because our guilt and sin are real, we will never be able to fully enjoy our relationship with our Lord until we know in our hearts that the death of Jesus for our sin enables us to look into our judge's face and see instead our bridegroom who longs for us to come near to him. We must get grace from our heads to our hearts. Maria was a mom who knew exactly what her 15-year-old daughter Christiana would have to do for a living if she ever ran away from her village to the city. That is why her heart broke when she awoke one morning to find her daughter's bed empty. Maria knew immediately where her daughter had gone and what she must do to find her. She threw some clothes in a bag, gathered all her money, bought a bus ticket for Rio de Janeiro, and stopped by the drugstore to take as many pictures of herself as she could afford. Maria visited every hotel, nightclub, or bar where prostitutes hung out. At each place, she left her picture, taped on a bathroom mirror, tacked to a hotel bulletin board, fastened to a corner phone booth. On the back of each photo, she wrote a note. But before long, Maria was out of photos and money. So, broken-hearted, she returned home. A few weeks later, young Christiana descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her big brown eyes no longer danced with the laughter of youth, but spoke of pain and fear. Her dream had become a nightmare. She longed to trade these countless beds for the secure pallet of her bedroom at home. But the little village was in too many ways too far away. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christiana's eyes blurred with tears as she crossed the room and removed the small photo. Written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you may have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. She did. Maria's words, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. Remind me of the father in Jesus' story of the prodigal son. In Luke 15, we read, But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. If you belong to Christ and turn toward God after you have sinned, are you absolutely certain that the father runs to you with arms wide open? He does. This knowledge of God's grace does not cheapen grace, causing you to sin more. To the contrary, it is the path to feasting your soul upon God's unconditional love, filling our tanks and making us less vulnerable to the pull of temptation in the future. So the first obstacle to building a joyful love relationship with God is believing that God sees me as disgusting when in truth he sees me clothed in the robe of Christ's righteousness. If the first obstacle to loving God well is thinking I'm too dirty for Jesus to enjoy, 
The second obstacle is to never grow beyond a rather childless view of God's restrictions. Children say, I hate these stupid rules. Our basic sinful nature is that of a spoiled child who wants his own way. Like the four-year-old at the checkout counter of the grocery store who fusses at his mom, you don't love me because she won't buy the candy he wants, our sinful nature texts us, God doesn't really love you when we are disappointed and something we really wanted him to do doesn't happen. Our sinful nature has a subtle definition of what loving me looks like. It is giving me my own way. The irony is that constantly giving a child his own way is actually a form of hatred. God tells us in Proverbs 13:24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. God's restrictions on us given in his moral law are for our good leading King David to sing, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. When God spanks us for disobedience to his laws, it is to guide us into life. Consider, for example, the blessing of just a few of the Ten Commandments. For example, you shall have no other gods before me. This command is not about God's ego or insecurity. It's about protection of our hearts. If we rely upon any other idol to fill the emptiness of our hearts, like success, popularity, respect, money, pleasure, children who turn out okay, such gods will first take over our lives, and secondly, they will ultimately fail to deliver the heart satisfaction they promised. Or consider the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Misusing God's name is the first step down a path toward disrespecting God's weightiness and glory. Thinking God is a lightweight leads to believing that the pleasure of sin is greater than its cost. But Proverbs 16.6 says, By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. The fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God. It is knowing that because of who God is, his weightiness, no one ever gets away with sin. Or consider the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Christians have not always agreed on how this part of the Old Testament moral law comes into the New Testament. Since Paul went to the synagogue to proclaim Christ to the Jews on Saturday the Sabbath, and met with Christ followers on Sunday, the first day of the work week, before and after work. But the pattern of going hard for six days, and then, first, resting our bodies, second, renewing our hearts in worship, and third, reflecting on our mission with our commander-in-chief, is a pattern with enormous benefits. Or consider the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that it may go well with you. An adult is seriously handicapped in life if he has not learned in his home as a child to respect his father and mother. Every structure of society, apart from anarchy, requires submission to some form of authority. Paul develops this thought in Romans 13. Or consider the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. 
Directing sexual desire and fulfillment into marriage alone is enormously beneficial to everyone in society. Think of the depth of rejection a spouse feels when she has been naked, fully known by her husband, but he throws her away for another woman. Think of the crippling emotional instability foisted upon our kids through their parents' breakup of their home. The self-discipline of saving sex for marriage is exactly what God intends to aid spouses to learn to keep their romantic and sexual desires from being captured by the enticement of outsiders, be they pictures or real. Finally, the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. The right of private ownership is foundational to maximize the economic prosperity of the culture. Paul reflects the profound link between working and prospering economically. When he explains in 2 Thessalonians, This we commanded you that if any would not work, neither should they eat. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Christians are called to great mercy for the widow, orphan, the homeless, and the poor, But helping them isn't accomplished by ignoring the principle of the Eighth Commandment. So if we're going to grow in our love for Christ, we need to shout down our sinful nature that insists on having its own way. God's restrictions are for our benefit, given to us because He loves us. The third obstacle to walking closely with Christ is that my sinful nature lies about pain. If God loved you, he wouldn't let you hurt so much. Such an expectation of a loving God is that he is soft, one who won't let me hurt too much, especially since I've chosen to follow him. There are two purposes to the pain that God allows in our lives. The first is a reproof for breaking the laws of life the way he designed it to be lived. When I touch a hot stove, I get burned. If I speed, I may get a ticket. If I answer my wife sharply, I can expect a hurtful reply. If I don't work hard on the job, I can expect to fail. Scripture identifies the purpose of this type of pain as steering us onto the path to life. Proverbs 6.23 says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Our nervous system is intended to protect us. One whose nerves have been destroyed, like a leper, for instance, might actually accidentally destroy his hand by putting it in a pan of boiling water because he did not feel the pain. But this is only one kind of pain, reproof. There is much pain and suffering in this world that cannot be explained this way. How can we tell a child God is all-loving in the midst of the heart-wrenching pain she feels when her parents divorce, when she prayed to God with all her heart that God would make her parents love each other again? How do we explain God's love to a spouse whose mate God allowed to be killed by a drunk driver? What do we say to a couple whose child dies of cancer? Of course, it is best not to try to give any explanation at the time, just compassion. But how do we keep these thoughts from eroding our confidence in God's loving nature? Well, in chapter two of Reason for God, entitled, How Could a Good God Allow Suffering? Tim Keller wrestles with this question, writing, 
Christianity alone among the world religions claims that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ and therefore knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, and imprisonment. On the cross, he went even beyond the worst human suffering and experienced cosmic rejection and pain that exceeds ours as infinitely as his knowledge and power exceed ours. He had to pay for our sins so that someday he can end evil and end suffering without ending us. If we again ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue, and we look to the cross of Jesus, we still do not know what the answer is. However, we do know what the answer is not. It can't be that he doesn't love us. God has proved his love for us at the cross. But I believe the most powerful answer to the doubts about God that flood into our hearts when we hurt is an understanding of resurrection. The resurrected body of Christ shows the renewal and restoration of the physical body. In Matthew 19, 28, Jesus indicated that his second coming will bring the regeneration of the earth. The Greek word is palin, which means again, and genesis, which means birth. Jesus insisted that his return will be with such power that the very material world and universe will be purged of all decay and brokenness. Keller observes, this means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. Just after the climax of the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee discovers that his friend Gandalf is not dead, as he thought, but alive. He cries, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? The answer of Christianity to that question is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. I want to say that again. The principle of resurrection renewal is that everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. The broken heart of the single woman, never having been cherished by a husband, will, I believe, cause her to enjoy Jesus as her bridegroom eternally in a deeper way than she would have had she been married. Parents whose hearts have been crushed by losing a child will have more eternal joy in a restored relationship with their child than they ever could have had they never known the devastating grief of losing him. In other words, what if Jesus knows that every ounce of pain he takes us through in this life to test our faith and persevere in godly trust in him will bring greater joy to us throughout eternity than had he never allowed us to suffer. C.S. Lewis wrote, They say of some temporal suffering no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. 
This is the ultimate defeat of evil and suffering. Our God is so good that he will turn the suffering brought about by our race's sin into something that makes our future life and joy infinitely greater. This is our God. The fourth obstacle to walking closely with Christ is the poor management of our time. Deepening any relationship requires an investment of time. I believe the ordering of our time and money should be a practical expression of our commitment to the first commandment that God is first place in our lives. We give the first 10% at least of our earnings to God, and he promises to more than meet our needs with the remaining 90%. Similarly, we want to give the Lord the first portion of our time, some each day with him in his word, some on the Lord's day to delight in the Lord and reflect on our mission. Someone has defined time this way. First, a limited resource extended only by giving the first part back to God. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Second, time is a daily treasure which attracts many robbers. Ephesians 5, 16 says, Make the most of your time because the days are evil. Third, time is an earthly trust, which, if invested wisely, will produce eternal treasures. Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Fourth, time is your most precious asset, which is easily squandered by directionless living. Matthew six thirty three. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Nearly every marriage counselor I know tries to teach couples that their relationship cannot grow unless they make time together a time management priority for their lives. Listening to Christ's call to deepen and enjoy a love relationship with him has tremendous potential to fill us with joy and spiritual power, because that is what it means to abide in Christ. But being poor stewards of our time may leave us with little time left to give God. So he gets the leftovers. To summarize this episode, probably standing in front of a lush vine full of grapes, Jesus taught his followers that the key to producing luscious spiritual fruit was staying connected to Jesus as the branches are connected to the vine. Just four verses later, he gave more insight into this connection when he said, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. We examined four obstacles to growing this love relationship. First, believing that God sees me as disgusting when I surrender again to sin, when in truth he sees me as fully clothed in Christ's imputed righteousness. Second, being angry with God when his restrictions prevent me from having my own way, instead of trusting those restrictions to be for my benefit. The third obstacle to deepening my love relationship with God is letting pain make me doubt God's love for me because I refuse to believe that pain now will lead to greater eternal joy, trusting his promise that all things work together for good for those who love God who are called according to his purpose. The fourth obstacle to this connection with Christ is mismanaging my time 
so that my relationship with Christ gets the leftovers in my schedule. For further prayerful thought, number one, what has most helped you know that when you turn toward God after giving in to sin, God is like the father of the prodigal running to you with open arms? See the show notes for additional questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in print format at my website, forgingbonds.org. Next week, we continue our four-week series, Igniting Fire for Our Mission in a Disheartening World. Since the second part of our calling is to be like Christ, our episode topic is developing Christ-like strength, the kind we need to help others who depend upon us. Thanks for listening today. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about a podcast that helps them stay focused on their mission from Christ by inspiring them each week while they commute or work out.